0: Welcome to the Kara's Care Show, where we explore the cutting edge of wellness. And today we're exploring the psychology of the soul and how spirituality can help our mental health. Welcome, everyone. I'm Kara Sundland. Dr. Karen Herrick has spent decades actually studying this, and she is joining me now. Welcome, doctor. Thank you so much. It's so nice to be here. Yeah, this is really interesting because a recent Gallup poll showed 41 percent of Americans have had some sort of a spiritual awakening that changed their life. But how do those experiences, especially from the lens of a psychologist, actually help our well-being and our mental health?
1: Well, first, what they do is once people have had them, they, um, they believe that there's a higher power or God. And um, so there's somebody bigger than them that they can go to when they're having a problem. Um, then they feel like they have uh, a sole purpose, which we all have in this life. And it's our job to live this life to the best of our ability. Uh, but they know they have a purpose. And many times they come back after these spiritual experiences and um, they want to have better relationships. They want to be more loving. Um, they don't have, you know, that's um, the overall feeling that they have. And then um, one of the things that they learn from this is to lower your mental c- capacity, meaning don't think so much. Mm. Go out into the world and and you know have some time where you walk the dog and you garden and um, you meditate or you read spiritual material.
0: Uh, you take time to to um, give back to yourself and refresh yourself so uh, it can be a monumental perspective shift and it doesn't have to be let's talk about a spiritual awakening. Could this sometimes just be that you lost a loved one?
1: Well, lots of times when losing a loved one, you have a spiritual awakening because you're in grief and you feel like you can't make it. You can't live without them. You're going to miss them so much. And then you find out, you know, when people come to me and grief, I say to them, well, what was Charlie like? You know, tell me a little bit about him. And um, and then after that, after we get to know Charlie a little bit, I'll say, well, where do you think he is? And, and they, they always have an answer. Um, heaven to a better place. Um, it's just that no one has validated that that's where he is. And then if you see Charlie in your bedroom at night um, and you're afraid to tell people because they think that you're crazy.
0: And and so as a mental health professional, what does it mean when you're having those experiences?
1: It means that you're going to a higher level of consciousness. And the difference between um, mental illness and a spiritual experience is that um, a person that has a spiritual experience is humbled by it and they they feel in awe and they can tell you that story over and over again and the story doesn't change um and with a uh, someone who's mentally ill the story is just you know pretty crazy and changes every time they say it and they don't get an, a lesson from it whereas with the spiritual experience you get a lesson um, eventually. You might not get one right away because you really never thought you'd leave your body and, and see your deceased grandmother and um, all these beautiful things and then be told that it's time for you to come back, which is what happens in a near death. And those people are the happiest people because they've died and come back. And And Freud was right about um, everybody has this fear of death or most people. And so they live very cautiously and they don't talk about death. And death can be just a beautiful thing. You don't die. Your soul goes to another place because your soul is immortal and and you have another life. And then you become a spirit and then you wanna come back. Like if somebody loves you, they wanna come back and tell you what it's like over there. Um, they can't talk, but they can send you thoughts. They can appear in your dreams. And all of this is happening to people. And what we really need is to, I'm just so happy that you're having this on the show. Is to educate people um, because so many people that have near death experiences, seventy nine percent of them divorce at some time after the near death. Why? Because their their loved ones doesn't don't believe it. Their relatives they think they're crazy. Stop telling that story. Um, and then sometimes when they come back, they don't want to work. Like maybe they think it's it's too crazy working. You know, in the television business, and they, they want to go out and be uh, work. Uh, at a hospital. And, the, and they're like, you're nuts. Why are you doing this?
0: Okay. But their
1: life changes. Yeah. So other people don't like it and they don't believe it.
0: Well, and there's actually a group, um, we've done stories with them here at the University of Connecticut. There's a group that meets biweekly weekly that, that has had near-death experiences. And I know this is actually an area now of scientific study. What do we know about people who have had near-death experiences?
1: We know that they can disassociate easier than the normal population uh, because what happens is uh, is that they come from traumatic homes where they have had physical, physical abuse, incest, all kinds of things have happened to them. And um, as a kid, you learn to disassociate. You just take yourself out of the room so that you can survive. So then if you're an adult and you're on um, a cardiac table in a hospital or you're in an auto accident... You have an easier job of just leaving because you're used to disassociating.
0: And then I think from the psychological perspective, disassociation isn't something we aim for, right? We want to more embody ourselves. So, But after someone's had a near-death experience, um, you mentioned they become more humble. Does it often improve their mental health if they work with it?
1: They work with it. But one of the problems is somebody who's had a near death waits seven years usually before they tell anybody. So that's a lot of years to go around thinking that you might be crazy and you're afraid um, you know, to tell somebody a story.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, so w- one of the things that you're interested in is actually paranormal research. Um, and I know this is a field that some uh, psychotherapists and mental health professionals will deal they'll even bring in certain mediums to help deal with grief to help someone yes. fe- you know resolve unresolved issues. Do you see that dealing with the afterlife is actually becoming a field that mental health professionals need to learn more about?
1: Yes, and i I have a lot of people in my practice. I've been here over thirty five years and they come to me from dysfunctional homes. So maybe that's why and trauma. that's why I have had a lot of people that have told me these paranormal stories uh, because they are the ones that learn to disassociate earlier. Um, but they then go into, you know, wanting better lives, helping more people, being kinder. Uh, it's just a wonderful life. Now the people that come in in grief, many times I have to teach them about mediumship. So because they've been told by, you know, their grandmother or their religion or whatever, you don't go to one of those people. Um, but mediums are, are kind of like therapists. They they take classes. They learn. It is it is a gift, as St. Paul says in the Bible. At least that's what I believe. There are some mediums. And of course, Christ said anybody can learn how to do this. And um well, okay, but not everybody does. So the ones that do learn how to do it, I have a list of mediums that I, um, give to my clients that I've used or my friends have used that we can trust and, um, and they go, and, and then when they come back, I remember one gentleman, he was in such grief, we worked for nine months and he had two children he was left with. And, um, you know, after nine months, I said, you know, we got to start parenting these kids and getting you out of this depression. And so nothing really is working, and I'd like you to go to a medium. Oh, no, it's not going to do that. And uh, I was lucky because his wife had been a twin, and I had had his sister in law in therapy, and um, she had called me after her sister passed. And she said, you know, she went to a medium, she knew where she was, and everything's good uh, with her. So I used that. I said, Your sister in law went, and how is she handling her grief? Um, You know, and he said, Oh, yeah, she's fine um so doesn't that show you that it could be helpful mm. so anyway finally got him to go and he went and number 1 we can't guarantee the wife's going to come in we can't guarantee anybody's going to come in a medium will tell you to bring a picture of who you want to talk to and that might increase you know their desire because you have the desire and love is the greatest energy and that's the connection so um anyway so his parents had died a year before, and an aunt and uncle had died 18 months ago. I said, somebody's going to come in. I guarantee you that. So he went, and when he came back to my office, his shoulders were down. He was so relaxed, and it was just amazing. And he sat down, and he said, they were all there. Hmm. I said, well, that's wonderful, and, um, and it's not my fault. See, he had such guilt that he just couldn't get through that. Um, that you know, he did some things that he thought caused her heart attack and that kind of stuff. Um, so anyway, what did they say? And so and she told him about the kids and which one we had to work with the first, and it was just great, you know. And um, and he was fine. And and she also told him to go out and get a girlfriend and get a life. So that oh. was very good. <laughs> well, um, but most people don't understand this. And William James, who's the father of American psychology, said the best way to understand a medium visit is to go.
0: Mm. well and i think you know hey everyone has their own belief system so it probably isn't the best route if you're like so against this and you're not going to be open to it fine but what you're saying is from ah. from another perspective where the people might be on the fence or that we need to normalize these conversations about uh, as you call the psychology of the soul, and that it's actually um you wrote a thesis naming spiritual experiences, so you think the mental health professionals um, actually need to educate themselves and normalize some of these experiences that people have?
1: Yes, absolutely.
0: so that they way they're need, not called they need crazy that instruction Thank you pardon. So that way they're not called crazy. they're not called
1: crazy and. And they don't resort, the people in grief don't resort to, you know, depression and drinking and smoking pot too much and all those things that they go to because they're in such pain. They have to make that connection with their deceased loved one and know they're still there on some level.
0: So talk about some of the science in this field of exploring the scientific aspect of the afterlife with regards to mental health.
1: Sure. The, the newest thing is the Bix uh, Consciousness Study, uh, Bigelow Consciousness Study in Las Vegas. And um, uh, Robert Bigelow, as I understand, is a billionaire. And in uh, let's see, it was twenty twenty one. The New York Times had a, a article about him, and he was going to give a uh, million dollars to some paranormal researchers who could explain life after death uh, with evidence that would be um, approved in a court of law. So anyway, there were 1200 people that applied for the application. And then nine months later, 204 people gave this 25,000 board paper to him. And, um, they were all read by a panel of psychologists and, um, quantum physics people it was really, you know, very well done. And then in November 1st, 29, um, winners were announced. The first winner, uh, received $500,000, uh, for the paper. And that was Jeffrey Mishlove. And he uh, used to be on PBS, I think. And he would interview, excuse me, all the experts in this um, paranormal and, um, you know, different consciousness study world. And so in his paper, every reference was a video. So it was worth half a million dollars. Uh, it was the best paper I ever read. Uh, anyway, um so I am reading those papers of people who have just given evidence that could be used in a court of law, just like the near-death experience or out-of-body uh, mystical experiences or seeing your de- deceased uh, loved one. All of those stories that people tell, that's what they're using. And now they're trying to um, study mediums, I understand, uh, that um, can get uh, wise um, information from the afterlife.
0: Mm-hmm. So when you uh, talk about, there's something actually called, we have a vagus nerve, and if, if you are uh, on any level of social media and, and, and people are becoming more interested in mental health, there's a lot about the vagus nerve, Deepak Chopra will talk about it, there's a lot of uh, quick meditations to access your vagus nerve and calm your anxiety. Can you tell us a little about the vagus nerve, what it is, and then also how it relates to your field of study with the afterlife?
1: Yes. Well, the vagus nerve is is the 10th and longest nerve in your body. It starts at the top of your head, goes down around your neck, touches your amygdala, which is fight, fight, or float, frozen feelings. So we use it in panic and um, PTSD to help people breathe through the vagus so that they can calm down. Then the vagus goes into your heart and into your stomach. So it touches every organ in your body. And I I think um, that's the highway to spirituality because in my paranormal studies you're you have two bodies humans have two bodies so that would be a good byline for this story um you have a spiritual body and a physical body so when you come in and like saint paul says in the bible you come in on the physical and you leave on the spiritual and then your soul which is immortal is encapsulated and left in your solar plexus and your physical body uh, grows around that soul so that you have an etheric body that's growing along with the physical body now when you have a spiritual experience and you're going to leave the body there's an automatic process that happens and that i've i've established what that is if you want me to read it to you i'd be glad to because i don't have that fully memorized and i want to give it every little piece that i can Um, you just i understand that around your ears you you feel this uh, movement and your whole body switches and then the etheric body goes up the highway of the vagus nerve Now, there's a silver cord that's um, invisible, and you only can see that if you're clairvoyant. So we need clairvoyant researchers to do this job. Um, And so the silver cord, um, vagus nerve, you go up that highway, and I think that's the tunnel when people have a near-death and they say everything's dark. Well, it would be dark in there. But your body has um, gone down into a molecule, molecule level, etheric level, chemicals, yeah, but it's not the physical body. it's going up the physical body out the top of your head and um and then you're connected with the silver cord at the top of your head and you're out there flying around and visiting whatever you're doing. and then um all of a sudden they say something pulls me back and they don't know what that something is, but they cut, return to the physical body again through the vagus nerve.
0: Mm. I- mm. Yeah, I, I had the pleasure of, yeah, go ahead, grab a sip of water. I had the pleasure of interviewing Anita Morjani, who was a physician who's now written, you know, best-selling books about her near-death experience, where she's uh, described being, watching her whole family and all of the doctors say goodbye to her, and that as a doctor in this world, she would have never subscribed to any of this, except she experienced it. So she be- believed her life purpose was then to come back and talk about how she came back and, and her body was fully healed. And what she learned right. and from from a, from she couldn't put away the fact that she'd been a doctor for decades so she had that medical expertise but it completely shifted her and uh, so there is a lot of uh, it, this this is getting talked about more I guess is there's 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 some you're saying official research and there are those who are taking a more scientific aspect to the research of the soul
1: well, more scientific but we don't have to prove it in a lab because I don't know how many people you could pay even to have a near-death in a lab. Yeah. So, if, if it's just, um, you know, that we need evidence that would uh, be used in a court of law, we can get that. We've got lots of evidence. And 200 years worth. In fact, one of the winners of, of the VIX thing, I think he won 50000 And he said, oh, we just have to read the evidence up to 1920. We don't need any more evidence. <laughs> and here it is. So. Um, but it's wonderful that somebody with the resources like Robert Bigelow has because I think I think his name is going to get to be bigger and bigger as he's paying people to do this research that mostly all of us just do it because we're very interested in it and it helps our clients. um and you know that's the that's the whole purpose,
0: yeah. well, and you've developed in your research actually four steps to help people through the grieving process that incorporates this. Tell us about that.
1: Um, well, it, that incorporates that. Number one, they they have to be able to tell me uh, that they have a spirituality of some kind, um, and just like I said in the beginning, and then we work with that. And it, it um, I am also a reverend in the interfaith ministry, and I just use that to to understand different cultures and different religions, so that I can understand what they're saying and go with them in that. And then um, they need to be able to tell the story, and also in grief, um, sometimes grief touches other things that we've never finished. So then you have to do the therapy on some of their levels of their unconscious. Which I what I use is is Carl Jung's five layered of the layers of the unconscious. Freud said your unconscious is just a repository for your childhood memories and everything sexual. And Jung, and he broke up in six years for that reason, because Jung said, people have more interest than that. And there's more in the unconscious than that. And he came from a religious family. But the five layers are your life, what happened to you. Sometimes we have to go through some of that in grief. Your parents' lives is second, and what, how did they affect you? And then the third layer is DNA. So you have ancestors, and according to Jung, ancestors could have left jobs that you were supposed to finish. And that's part of your sole purpose, but you don't know that. So he did genealogy. We, we go into some of that. What were your ancestors like? Like some of the people that come in and have mediumship abilities and you tell them that they don't want to have that. They just want to still be considered the weird one in the family. Well, don't tell them. Don't tell them that. And I said, not everybody can predict when somebody's going to die. Do you realize that? But they don't want that gift. Mm. But many of them have been given that gift from um, people in their family. And then the fourth layer is your soul, not your soul, I'm sorry, your culture or your country. So well, how did that affect you and raise you? And then your fifth layer is self slash soul. And then to realize you have a soul, an immortal uh, spiritual part of you that you carry around every day. But we need to really give that some more life, the spiritual part, and um, and and try to be more kind and understanding. So after we've done those five layers, And and then if they go to a medium, they're really on their way to um, a healthy, happy life. And and they're using everything that we could use to understand themselves.
0: So basically, that's what you're looking at this from a mental health perspective, is that when people... uh whatever they call it, a higher power, they call it the universe, they call it God, they call it whatever their tradition teaches them, having that higher ability and having those explanations can really help them process grief faster?
1: Yes, and knowing that, they're, um, that they can have a, a transcendent experience with an angel, uh, with something that uh, maybe isn't even attached to their religion, and they go into this feeling of the now, which is just awe, and and knowing that your heart and your head are connected and it's just a beautiful feeling um, it really changes them because then you know you're just you're just a little seed in this big world but you do have a purpose here and i also teach them about um the metaphysical worlds around us that william james and carl Jung believed in so you and i are talking today in our sensory reality very materialistic past present future that's how we meet everybody right And then the second reality is the clairvoyant reality, where you can have telepathy, um, you know, near-death experiences, out-of-body mystical experiences, angels appear to you. Um, That's the now. Now, when you're in there, you're just, there's no past, present, or future. There is the now, and you're just filled with this love and spiritual feeling. And then there's another reality that we call the transpsychic reality, and that's where miracles happen. And the Catholic Church has proven 70 miracles, uh, which I think are too little, but doctors say that they see miracles. You know, most some doctors say they see miracles every day. And so we have those three realities and they're all spinning around us. So it's more than just our sensory reality, but we need to calm down and breathe. And, you know, it really is, don't think, just breathe. And do that more often and you will uh, be able to have a more spiritual sense.
0: Well, and and that's, I like to make things practical. So we're talking about a lot of mystical things and and that's, uh, everyone has their own separate beliefs about how that works. However, from the mental health perspective or from a yoga perspective or from a stress and anxiety perspective, all of that, all the traditions say that when we breathe, when we come into the now, when you do any kind of grounding practice, relaxation, flow, um, it, it's helpful to your mental health. And then what you're saying is you're also going to have more access to these inspirations or revelations.
1: We're going to be able to see more, too. And the the the, the vagus breath, it can be called many things. I think it's called a yoga breath. But you breathe into the count of four and then breathe out as long as you can go. Mm-hmm. And it, so we're not used to breathing like that with a longer out breath. But people that are in panic and anxiety, and I, you know, I have a poster in, in my office that shows the Vegas, and this is in your body. And now, if you breathe like this, you can stop the panic and the PTSD all by yourself if you're in a car or wherever. If you can't sleep at night, do the Vegas breathing. Do this breathing more and more in your life, and it really does calm you down.
0: Yes, yes, Uh, we've done some of that on the show and just reminding people, even starting with maybe breathing in for a count of four, holding for a count of six, and out for a count of eight. But you can't do that. You can work up to it. But the idea that you're being in that, we can shift our nervous system from fight or flight to the relaxation response. We all have this automatic relaxation response. What you're saying also is that when we access that, um, some people wish that that part of their grief is I don't know I'm not seeing a sign I wish I knew my loved one was okay I, you know maybe they're not going to go to a meeting but they just want to know and they're not feel I wish I had a sign or I wish I um, you're saying when you relax into it more you might be more likely to feel the presence or to feel the okayness or to get a sign
1: well you know we all have this little voice in our in our head right and I don't know if it's always in our head but I remember being in New York City one day. And I'd just been to a conference for five days. So I had all my favorite clothes and my my computer and everything in the car. And we went down to the village and parked the car. And I said, this car is going to be robbed. And uh, I said to my friend, I don't think we should eat here. Let's just go to New Jersey and eat on the water. No, no, no. We got a parking place and everything. Let's go. And so anyway, we went. We shopped. We came back. and We got to New Jersey, opened the trunk. It was completely empty. So I said to myself... That that little voice should be louder. That's the problem. Then I realized, no, Karen, you should be quieter. <laughs> yeah. So we all have this little voice in our head, we can call it intuition, but you know, we do get we do get other thoughts that aren't our own thoughts that are sent to us by angels, spiritual guides, our our, our dead, deceased loved ones. And we get these thoughts, and that was Carl Jung had a um He had a big eruption when he uh, left Freud. But anyway, he had this one guru that came to him in his dreams. And he said, you know, you're so arrogant. You think that every thought in your head is yours. And it's not. And I always try to remember that. So if I get these thoughts, I see I kind of count. And if I get it three times and I know I'm not thinking it, well, then I'm, I'm thinking about trying it.
0: Okay, all right, so there's something. Just uh, notice the thoughts. I know journaling can come into that. There can be some real practical things for accessing you know, the more spiritual side of us. But it's a fascinating That's conversation. Right. I mean, you've done a lot of research on this, and basically, if I were to sum it up, as we're now at the end of our time together, um, having that acknowledgement that this spiritual side of ourselves is real, you see it as something very helpful as we improve on the mental health and mental well-being in our country.
1: And it's what we all need. All right. You know, we need to know there's a higher plan. <laughs> uh,
0: well, Dr. Herrick, thank you so much for being with us and talking about your fascinating research of the psychology of the soul. And we appreciate your time. Is there, um, we're running out of time, but anything you want people to read or go to so that they can learn more?
1: Well, I have a book, the Psychology of the Soul and the Paranormal, and they can get that on Amazon.com. And, um, and they can also write me if they want at Karen at karenherrick.com. Karen, and there's Karen also Herrick. a uh, website, kareneherrick.com, where they can watch uh, you know, free podcasts and things. Yes.
0: Well, I love that you're incorporating the, the decades of your professionalism as a mental health provider and uh, this um, fascinating science that I know a lot of people might be interested. So thank you so much for sharing your time on Cara's Cures.
1: Well, thank you for having me, and you have a wonderful show. You have a lot of knowledge. You're very good. Well,
0: thank you. Thank you. And have thank a great day. You too, and thank you all for exploring the cutting edge of wellness with us on Kara's Cures. You can follow me on social media, at Kara Sundlin, and we hope you have a great day, and be well.